God is our creator, and he has made humanity. He has made man and woman, male and female, in his own image. That could sum up those words right there, what we talked about last week, if you were with us. And as we've looked through Genesis 1 through 3, specifically those words in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And so last week, we, we did a, we walked through some things that might have been new for some of us, uh, might have been I don't know if we've dedicated a whole Sunday, certainly since I've been here we haven't, towards talking about God's plan for man and woman, gender identity, and things of those nature. And I just want to say thanks to uh, you for wading into those waters with me and for hanging in there for a longer sermon. I was reminded immediately after the sermon about a statement that I've heard some preachers make about attention span when it comes to sermons, and it basically goes like this that the mind can only comprehend what the butt can endure. You understand, right? And so thanks for hanging on there. And uh, today we're going to be, it's really kind of part two of what we've been doing. And so if there's any kids, before I go any further, if, well, one of the things we did last week is we had the kids step out, if you're sixth grade and younger, if mom and dad want that to be the case, given the nature of some of the things we talked about that's the same thing for today as well. And so if your kid's sixth grade and younger, we're going to assume going forward that mom and dad want you in here. So just saying that. Um, something else I want to say before we really get going here is I understand that the nature of what happens in this moment is kind of, not kind of, it is from me to you. And so uh, it is going one direction, but I know that the way that I know I learn, and so many of us learn, is through dialogue. And so after the service, if you want to continue the conversation about what we talked about this morning, what we talked about last week, uh, we're going to have a Q&A that's going to be in the fellowship hall. And that's not to say that yours truly has all of the answers, because I know I don't. But I do know that it's good for us to work these things out together in community and learn from one another. So we're going to have a forum to do that and look forward to being uh, doing that with you. Uh, something else, a couple other opportunities, if you can't make that, seven o'clock tomorrow night, my wife is, uh, wife Justine, who is not here this morning because our little one just got sick right before the service, so talking about marriage this morning, and my wife is not here. Honey, I know you're watching online. Anyways, she is taking that pamphlet that we handed out last week. By the way, we got 20 more copies this week, in case you haven't gotten one, called Does God Care About Gender Identity? 7 o'clock, ladies here, uh, 7 o'clock p.m. on Monday. If you want to be part of that, um, she welcomes you to, to join her at her regular uh, Bible study. Uh, lastly, our staff will be going through the same pamphlet uh, 9 o'clock on Tuesday morning. So if you can't make any of those and you just so happen to be able to make 9 o'clock on Tuesday, come join us. Come join us. Since we've been talking about all of this, some of you have come up to me afterwards going, it's pretty simple, Aaron. Why do we need to talk about these things? It's pretty straightforward. It's right there in my Bible. What, do we need? what else is there left to say? And I want to say that I believe that though biblical truth is straightforward, particularly when it comes to man, woman, marriage, male, female, sexuality, all these things, it is good to be reminded of the obvious, right? It's good to be reminded of the obvious things and when we don't talk about them for a long period of time, they can become not so obvious. So it's good to remind ourselves. But I think the second thing is this. The church can do a better job of relating to 
their LGBTQ neighbor. I just saw a stat yesterday uh, that said that 24% of Gen Z, so that's the generation below me, I'm a millennial, below me, Gen Z, 24% are identifying as LGBTQ, compared to Gen, I believe it's Gen X, that is 4%. So that, that is a dramatic shift in just a couple of generations. And these people are not pariahs. They're still made in the image of God. Well, you and I still call to love them. But something that I have observed is that when you have compassion without the truth, you can get carried by the wind of the culture. When you have truth without compassion, everything is a hammer. And if we're going to get this right on the railroad track of how we're supposed to go about this, we need the two tracks of compassion and the truth, to speak the truth in love. That's what you and I are called to do, and therefore that's why we're in Genesis 2 once again this morning. And so you might have noticed that we started at verse 4. Uh, you would think, if we're starting in this second way of talking about the account of creation, we would have started in verse 1. But in fact, the second part of this story begins in verse 4. And I want to do this. As we get into the garden story here, I, we need to clear away some things that can to make sense of all of this before we actually get into the story. Namely, you may have caught it the way Aaron introduced not this Aaron, Aaron Pilcher a moment ago, introduced how Genesis 1 relates to Genesis 2. Walk with me here for a few moments. When I was in college, one of the things that I came across was what was known as uh, the documentary hypothesis. Just work with me here. And, and the idea was that when you look at Genesis 1, which is about the six days of creation, the Lord rests on the seventh day, seventh day that maybe that's one account of talking about creation and then Genesis 2 and 3 are talking about a, the same account, but from a different lens. It's a different account, and maybe these two sources were kind of spliced together. Let me show you some of the ways that people have, the reason people have thought about this. Uh, they've looked at verse 4. Notice how it begins. These are the generations of. And by the way, notice it doesn't talk about people. It talks about creation. If you keep on reading through Genesis, and you have been in Genesis in the first part of this year in your devotional reading, you might have noticed that there's at least, by my own count in Genesis, another 10 times where you'll get, these are the generations of, and it starts a new section. And it's talking about these are the generations of Jacob or of Isaac and so on. But here we're talking about creation. So clearly there's something new that is starting in verse 4. People have pointed that out. Others have pointed out there's a different order of a few things. We don't have time to go into all that on how plants versus man, when, and how they're created. It's different. You notice that in chapter 1, God does what to make creation come into existence? He speaks, right? But in chapter 2, it's far more earthy. What does he do with man? He, he, takes, him, he takes the dust and he starts putting it together, Right? With the woman, he takes the rib out, right? It's far more earthy in comparison to chapter 1. Chapter 1, God is called, the, the actual Hebrew word there is Elohim. But notice in verse 4 of chapter 2, is that the same name that we get? No, we get capital L-O-R-D, which for you and I, that's, that is referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh God. So there's different names in chapter 1 versus chapter 2. In chapter 1, the, the name of God, 
Elohim refers to the fact that he is the sovereign, powerful, majestic creator. Chapter 2, though, when you have Yahweh, you're getting the personal name for God there. The one who is who he is, who covenants with his people, who's close to them, draws near to them. Doesn't that make so much sense the way this story goes about how God interacts with Adam? There's a personal aspect here. And when it takes those two words in chapter 2 of Yahweh Elohim, he's telling you he's not just the creator, but he's also the one who draws near to us. And so in all of this, as I've wrestled, I have wrestled, I'll tell you this, for about nine, ten years on this question. Is chapter 1 and chapter 2 two separate accounts, or is it in reality chapter 2 an expansion of the sixth day of creation? Let's, let, you know what, I just thought of this right now. So if you think, let's just play a little game here. Chapter 1, chapter 2, if you think it's two different sources, raise your hand. Okay? If you think chapter 2 is an expansion of day 6, Leroy's already got his hand raised. Okay? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Uh, I want you to know that within the last week, that's, that's where mine, my hand is as well. And I'm going to tell you why. Something I had never noticed in this passage before. I can't tell you how many times I have read Genesis 2. Look again, verse 4. These are the generations, and note the order of the heavens and the earth. Where have we heard that already? Verse 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's referencing back to that. When they were created, in the day that the Lord God, notice the order switch, made the earth and the heavens. And Kenneth Matthews in his commentary points out how this verse is like a hinge on which chapter 1 and chapter 2 are connected. Chapter 1, it's God who is speaking creation into existence from heaven to earth. In chapter 2, though, we're talking about the earth itself. It's far more earthy, the way God does things. It's far more connected, far more personal. And so you have that switch from heaven to earth, and now we have the other part of the story from earth to heavens. And so I would argue on the basis of, there's more I could say, don't have time. We talk about it in the Q&A afterwards if you want. That in the basis of chapter 2, verse 4, that verse is like a hinge the way a door is connected to a doorpost that connects chapter 1 and chapter 2. I have taken the time to point this out to you for this reason. Not just so that you would have a literary framework to know what this actually is in front of us. It's an expansion of day 6, I believe. But also to say this. I talked with Wes about this this last week and went, is it okay for the pastor to say, I'm learning something new, or do I need to have it all together? And he says, look, I hope you're 31 right now. I hope that when you're 62, you're still saying the same thing. And I would say, if the Lord leads me to be 93, I would still be saying the same thing. There's something in the passage I had never saw before. God always has more light to give in his word. And so let you and I never think that we have all the answers. His word is sufficient. It always has new things to say to us. It doesn't change but our eyes hopefully get better vision as we continue on. And so that's, I'm learning to right here with you. And so that's, that's the intro to this. Let's get into the story itself as was read to us. Our story begins this morning by telling us about an untethered land. There's, there's several no's that we get right off the bat that we have in this creation that God made in this untended, I said untethered, untended land Three no's, no bush of the field in the land or small plant of the field. There's no rainwater and there's no man to work the ground. How is the Lord going to have his land cultivated? 
And so the ESV, the version that I have in front of me, uh, says that there was a mist that was coming out of the ground. Maybe your version, I believe the NIV, says that there were streams of water. A little bit different, right? Translations are a little bit different on this, on how they were coming up out of the land. And depending on how you interpret the passage, either the problem is that there wasn't enough water to take care of this arid land, or there was too much water that, uh, that needed irrigated by a farmer. For my money, I would lean towards the ESV's marginal reading. You'll notice at the bottom of your page uh, that, and with most scholars, that underground springs were coming up from the land. So this is the untended land we have. So this God who spoke creation into existence does something shocking. If you only had read chapter one, he gets down on his knees and with his hands he picks up some dirt and he starts crafting, putting together a human body. And he makes a man, and he does it like a master craftsman. If you think of the great master craftsmen who have lived throughout the last several hundred years, immediately I think of Michelangelo. And if you know Michelangelo, when he was 26 years old, he sculpted the David, which is located today in Florence, Italy, yeah, it's in Florence. I'm not going to put the picture up on the screen because if you know the picture, he is, he is naked, and we're not going to put that up, okay? If you study the statue, though, one of the things that you'll notice is that there's this man using a chisel crafted the veins and the muscle detail. It looks like a real person, and you have to remind yourself this is actually just still marble. It's still rock. Michelangelo actually paid such attention as I've studied some of the work that he's done his depiction of Moses uh, has Moses holding up his forearm like this, and he paid such attention to detail that when the arm is held up like this, there's a little muscle right in your forearm that only protrudes when you're up like this, and he made sure he chiseled that into the rock. Just fascinating things that he did. Majestic. When you look, I've gotten the chance to go myself to, uh, to Rome and to see the paintings and the work of this master craftsman. And yet, Michelangelo had to borrow the marble that he used to create the David. And the statues that he made had their inspiration in the more true reality of human beings and the human body being made by God himself. I think of one artist I know, his name is Michael Phillips. He's a missionary, works in the art scene in Thailand. And he said something that just floored me one day. This was... Back when I was a college student, he says, you know what the most beautiful, majestic thing that has ever been made, ever, that, that, that exists? A guy who's a painter, all this. He goes, it's the human body. It's fascinating the way it is. The Lord God, the dust was his. The idea to create was his. With eyes and ears and skin and a nervous system. Leg, legs, arms, immune system, muscular, skeletal, so on and so forth. And God takes these, this dust and makes a man. If you've ever been to a gravesite funeral, you've heard me say, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. And we're beginning with the dust here. By the way, he will breathe life into this man. Jesus later, when he rises from the dead, this is a great reference. He actually takes this exact passage and he uses it as a parable when he breathes on the disciples the Holy Spirit and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so we have a God-formed, God-breathed human being and Adam, 
man, made from the Adama, or Adama, the ground, and God is the potter, and we are the clay, and he knows what he's doing with his creation. So this is what he makes. And he takes this man, and he places him in a garden in the land of Eden. I find that very fascinating. When you look at verse 8, the, a garden in Eden. So there was a land called Eden, and within that land, there is this garden. And a description of it. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, and it's good for food. You wouldn't be wrong if you called this place paradise, paradise. You would be wrong, though, if you tried to find where Eden was today because there's a huge problem. There's, there's four, there's four uh, rivers here. We have the Tigris and the Euphrates. We know that. Those are located in southeastern Iraq, but we have no idea where those other two are located. Many have tried in vain to locate Eden. Christopher Columbus, when he... Sailed on the ocean blue, thought that when he showed up to South America, he was actually in Asia. And he thought that the Garden of Eden was located there. Other candidates for the Garden of Eden have been the North Pole, beautiful islands on the Indian Ocean. And the truth is we simply don't know. But in this paradise, it is a place, it was a place of not just delight, but it was a place where God would dwell with man. And he would walk with him and he would talk with him. That's what makes verse 18 so shocking. Read with me verse 18. By the way, you notice that I just skipped over the command. There is a command here where he makes, the Lord does, the Lord God, two trees. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he says to the man, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to that later. In another week. But he speaks this Lord who's created everything good, and then he goes, It is not good. By the way, once again, that's another reason why I believe that Genesis 2 is connected to chapter 1, because in chapter 1, what do you have over and over at, on each day of creation at the end? It was very good. He says it's very good. And so there's definitely a, a, a literary thing that is happening here when he goes, Now it's not very good. It's meant to shock you right there. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper that is suited for him. That is suited for him. And so in the first ever episode of The Bachelor, Adam has his rose. And the Lord takes each of the animals and puts it in front of him. And he says, no, not that one. No, not that one. And I just imagine Adam's lounging on his couch there in Eden, and he sees the parakeet, he names the parakeets, he sees the lion, he sees the monkey, he goes, definitely not the monkey, none of these are going to work, and the Lord has given this authority to him, the Lord who had the authority to name all of his creation on day one through six has now given authority to Adam, and he names these animals that are given to him, and none of them are a suitable helper, and so we have a crisis God has made his man. He has put him in the garden. He's supposed to be fruitful and multiply. He's supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And yet, the Lord hates loneliness. And the Lord hates what he sees in front of him. Or he dislikes what he sees in front of him. It's insufficient. And so with a bit of divine anesthetic, the Lord puts our Adam to sleep. And he performs an operation. The operation, many of us know it. If, if you're paying attention to what we read, he 
puts the man to sleep, takes a rib out of the side of man, and he creates another human being. Okay, trivia question before we go any further. Got to make sure we deal with this. Do males have one less rib than females? Yes or no? No, okay, so I'm glad we just dealt with that right here. Yeah, so, so, so men have the same amount of ribs as women. That is, a, that, is, that is a, it would be really cool if that was the case, but that is not the case, just so that we can deal with that and we're clear. So this man, though, wakes up, he wakes up, he sees the woman, and he explains right there at the end of the chapter, this at last is bone of my bones, this is flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. And in case it wasn't clear to you, what just happened right there is that our brother just broke out in poetry. He was so excited. He speaks out and he says, she's of me. Literally, she's of him. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. There's a play on words that happens here. We referenced this last week that you have man, Ish, and he calls her Isha. She is literally from him. So, his, so this Adam has his Eve, his helpmate. And like with any good story, there is a moral to the story that comes right at the very end, verse 24, and it goes like this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. With that ending comment, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. This is the famous story of God the Creator who has made male and female, man and woman in his own image, has placed them in a garden, and he has given them the wonderful covenant called marriage. So in our time that's left this morning, I want to take this definition that we get in verse 24 of marriage here. This one flesh union that the book of origins, Genesis, gives us. And I just want to zero in on verse 24. Spend some time talking with you about it. Um, God's definition of marriage, if I was going to use modern day language, we could define it this way. Is that it is a monogamous, heterosexual union between a man and a woman. There is no doubt that when you and I approach Genesis 2, when we approach this passage, we are, we are approaching it with Western lenses. We are also approaching it with being in, we're in the wake of the 1960s sexual revolution. We live in a world today that has a variety of perspectives on sexuality, on marriage, and, and things of that nature. We have traditional marriage, that would be many of us in here. We have the LGBTQ movement, we have, we have monogamy, we have open marriage, we have those who say marriage is just a, uh, it's just a contract with a piece of paper. We have those who are living together, highest really ever um, in our country, of those who are living together without being married. But I want to ask you this question before we go any further. I want you to imagine you didn't have the context of our world that we are in right now, and you just had Genesis 1 through 2, clean slate, and you approached this without any bias, you just approached it as, you'd never heard of Genesis 1 through 2 ever in your life, and you approached these two chapters, what would you walk away with 
that was God's plan for marriage. You would walk away saying God made, first of all, male and female. You would walk away saying that marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman. You'd also walk away saying that part of the role of marriage is that you would be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is the context, by the way, that children are supposed to be born into. That's what I believe you would walk into. If you, if you had never read this before, you would walk away from the text saying, this is what the Bible says about marriage and how it defines it. And so if we're putting our opinions to the side, I want to sincerely ask you, is this not what the Bible teaches? Have I said anything this morning that is just radically different than what this passage says? I want to point out to some of us this morning, because I know that there are, I know this may surprise several of us, but I guarantee you there are a number of us who are here this morning who might be on the fence about what marriage actually is. And I want to ask you, have I said anything that is different than what the Bible says in Genesis 1 through 2 about marriage being a covenant between one man and one, one woman? I would say the answer is no, I have not said anything different. And so the question that you have to wrestle with ultimately, is a question of authority. It's actually the same question that Eve has to wrestle with in chapter 3 in the first part. Did God actually say? Did God really say? And so my challenge to you is, if this is what the Bible actually says, which will you follow? Your understanding of sexual ethics from the culture or the design of a good creator? even if it might cost you relationships and friendships in your own family or those around you. It's, this is actually a question of authority. The text is not difficult. It's actually quite straightforward. And so God, I want to say, I want to be a Christian who's not just known what, for what I am not for. I want to be a Christian who's known by what I'm for. And I believe that the standard of what God has given is wonderful and is good and it is lovely and everything else by comparison falls short particularly when we talk about so-called same-sex marriage. Have, let me just say the obvious things. And I know this may cut. I know this may sound politically incorrect, but I'm more concerned. Someone says, don't you want to be on the right side of history? I want to be on the right side of Christ. And so this is what I think we should see. The key indictment of any kind of marriage that is not between a man and a woman for life, when we think of same-sex marriage, is that obviously it cannot fulfill the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28. Any other form of so-called marriage cannot bring in life the way God has designed our human bodies and therefore the roles that we play in marriage to fulfill. God has designed the human body, and so as it relates to sexual intimacy, same-sex marriage is not what God had in mind. Take your cue from the body God gave you. If I need to spell that out for you, we can talk about this after the service. But hopefully you are connecting the dots of what I'm communicating. The body, male, was made for female. Female for male. This is good. Anything else falls short. Romans 1, 21 through 27. Let me just read that briefly. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Those who know that God exists and yet resist him. And their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. By the way, you're, 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 you should have just gone, ah, oh, that sounds like Genesis 1. Birds and animals and creeping things. For therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed and forever, amen. And then the key text. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women that are consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, let's just be straight. Maybe while you have been hearing what I just read there, maybe, maybe that just makes you uncomfortable because you know how many people would disagree with that right there. Maybe that's you. I'll tell you where I've gotten to in my life. I would rather pr- please the Lord than men, and I would rather be on his side than what somebody else might think of me. And if this is what it says, the creator of all things knows better than I do, and so I must follow him. What this is saying right here is if the pinnacle of God's creation, Genesis 1, is male and female and what he has given us, the pinnacle of uncreation is actually men with men and women with women. And God is not honored by this. And so we have to be honest about what the Bible says. I ask you once again, am I saying something that is contrary to the text itself or perhaps your issues with the text? You have to answer that question. And so, and so, this is an uncreation. What breaks my heart is, for me, and for many of us in here, as I'm talking about this, you're thinking of specific people. I know I'm thinking of specific people. I can have their, I have their faces in my head, my head right now. There's family members, friends. And the thing that, that makes me mourn is, I believe that at the end of the day, they know what they're doing, particularly when you see a male and female role being played in a so-called marriage ceremony. And you'll see two same-sex uh, same couple, one's playing the role of the man by the clothing that he is, he is wearing, the other, or, or she is wearing, and the other one is, is playing the female role. You, you notice this, they know what they're doing. It is a parody on the actual design of what God has given. I'm speaking firmly right now, but I want to be clear. When it comes to this issue, we do not mock, we mourn. And I hope that as you're hearing me right now, you hear me sharing these truths. I'm not doing it with joy. I'm I'm doing it out of of sorrow. Because I, I, yeah, I I can think of specific people, like I said before. This is personal for many of us. And yet, we have to go with the one who is the potter. We are the clay. And so my confrontation to each one of you this morning is, who are you going to go with? If this is you this morning and you fall into this LGBTQ camp, nobody else knows it in here, I want to ask you, will you go with the creator or will you go with something else? If you go with the creator, I promise you this. Jesus says, if anybody wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. It's challenging. But if you lose your life, you will save it. But if you try to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. And I don't want that for you. I want you to have the truth on your side.
So God's design, though, in what he has given. It's very good. He's given us our bodies to tell us the role that we play, and he knows also that this is going to be the context where children flourish in the best. I think another reason why traditional marriage is so much better is because boys need their father, and girls need their mother. Flip that. Girls need their father, and boys need their mother. I am seeing this in my own household, that when my wife says a word to my boys, versus when I say a word to my boys, there's something about the deeper register of my voice. They perk up in a different way. One of the things that, that makes me mourn is seeing how so many are growing up in households where they are missing. They are, young men are missing a father figure who will show them what it means to be a man. Women are growing up without, perhaps, a mother to show her how to be a woman. Christian marriages should be attractive to this watchful world because we are not only demonstrating in our marriage what Christ is doing, but also as we parent, for those of us whom God has called that to, called us to. There's one more thing I want us to look at, though, in here, and it requires that we go back to verse 18, and there's a particular word. God says, I will make a easer, a helper, suitable for him. You know, you might think when I say that word helper, we're talking about second class. You're thinking about a lower level than a man. Let the misogynist beware here. God is described as the helper. I just read in my devotional time this morning, he is described as the helper for Israel, and he is the one who fights Israel's battles for her. He is her help in ever times of trouble. And so, don't make that mistake. Helper doesn't mean lesser, but it refers to the role that the wife plays in marriage. These two are equal, both made in the image of God, and yet each have been made according to the roles that God has given them in the marriage covenant. I am what is referred to as a complementarian. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that word down, complementarian that my wife and I each have distinct roles, though we are equal in the home. It's the conviction that men and women are equal, and yet God has called them to their roles. The wife graciously helps and follows her husband, and the husband sacrificially and lovingly leads his wife. And I hold this conviction not because I believe it is a product of the fall, Genesis 3. I hold this conviction because I believe it is the ideal, Genesis 2. It is to Adam that God gives the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. Well, God as creator names the creation, he gives Adam the responsibility and the authority to name the animals and his wife. The focal emphasis of this chapter is on Adam and how God makes an easer suitable for him. And when Adam and Eve sin, this is probably the biggest one, who does God go to first? He goes to the man and he holds him responsible. Doesn't 1 Corinthians 15, 22 say, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, should be, all shall be made alive. There's a responsibility that came with being Adam. Yes, Ephesians 5 says, wives submit to your own husbands. Oh, that's an unpopular word. As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
but it also says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to him in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Amen? Amen. Okay. When men lead their households well, the whole family is blessed. You've heard it said, maybe you've heard this said, I know I've heard, I've heard this said, convert the wife to Christ and you might get the wife to drag the kids along to church, convert the husband to Christ and you have a much better chance of getting the whole family to come. You might get the whole family, much better chance. And so if you're new here, and man, this is just foreign, what I am saying to you, stick around for a minute and here's something I've noticed at Bethesda. Bethesda is a complementarian church that believes in male headship, believes that wives should follow their husbands, and yet, I would say to you, out of all the churches I have been in, man, there's some confident women in this place. Good night. Like, there's some, there are, you are confident, and yet, I think that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. This, this does not mean that women are demeaned. This means that we follow God's given rule for what he has given us. Man, and we are, I believe that we're blessed by it. See the lives of wives who graciously follow their husbands. And see how husbands lovingly lead their wives. Men, let us not abdicate our role as the spiritual leader in our home. I've seen too many families where the wife is dragging their husbands to church, or I'm talking to women, and they're here, and their, and their husbands aren't here. And I want to say, if you, that is you Wife, you're here this morning. Man, you are so courageous. And we want to say thank you for still enduring and being here. We are with you. I also want to clarify here. None of what I'm saying means that you follow your husband into sin. You follow your husband insofar as he follows Christ. The moment he leads you astray, you follow Christ. It also means that Jesus is your great high priest. You do not go through your husband to get to Christ. Jesus is the one who died on the cross for your sin. Nobody else did, and you have direct access to him. And so this cuts away any kind of abuse that can be taken from this passage. You have direct access to Christ, your great high priest. So those words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Let me say a last word to several different groups in here. The first group who's thinking about getting married one day. I've used the statement, you've heard the statement before. What's worse than being single is wishing that you were. The most important decision that you're ever going to make after salvation is the person, if God calls you to, whom you will marry. I'm coming up on 10 years of marriage and it has radically changed who I am, I believe, for the better. Don't just also, don't just ask, is, is he fine? Is he good looking? Is she, is she this? Is she that? But notice how I have tied marriage also to the family. Ask, will he be a good father? Will she be a good wife? These are important questions to ask. Be discerning. In-laws, let's talk. Your daughter-in-law now son-in-law is going to thank me for what I say next. Therefore, I'm just going to read it again just to make sure we got it. A man shall leave his father and mother. Let me try again. He shall leave his father and mother. 
if your child is, has been recently married, let them be married. Respect the marriage covenant that they have come into. To be fair to the passage in front of us, yes, in that culture, in that day, you would get married, and yes, you may still be a part of your father's household, but it was clear to everyone that a new unit, a new relationship, a new, a new marriage had come into existence. And so I'm just going to leave this out there and let the Spirit do what He needs to do. If you're a father-in-law, if you're a mother-in-law, respect the marriage covenant that your child has gotten into. I'm leaving it there. What about those who are on the verge of divorce or thinking about divorce? The D word, divorce. Let me just take a moment and address this. I know that there are those of you here who have been divorced. I know that there's, those are, there are those of you I've walked through and you have been divorced. And what I'm going to say right now, I want you to know that I know that what you have gone through has been so painful. And I know that you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy. I want you to know I'm really glad that you're here. And what I want to do right now is offer some preventative medicine so that others who are still married here would never have to go through what you go through, okay? So I want you to know that we are for you. To those of us who are married and are questioning marriage, I want you to notice that this is a one flesh union. Jesus quotes this very verse in Matthew 19, and he says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And if you're here and you're on the verge of divorce or you're thinking about it, here's what I know. If God can redeem you, and he can redeem all of us, he can redeem anything. And I just want to put this out to you, and maybe this is the only thing that you remember. Is that Jesus is good, and there's always hope. That Jesus is good and that there is always hope. And you don't have to do what you're going through alone. That there is a church that is supposed to be the hands and the feet of Jesus and it is not supposed to be the place where you feel ostracized. I think we have not done a great job in this area and we could do a much better job. And so if that is you this morning, know that you're just a sinner like the rest of us and we're right here with you. Ephesians 5.31 says, takes this quote of Matthew, of, pardon me, of Genesis 2.24. Paul says, this, these words, that a man shall leave his father, be unified to his wife, they become one flesh. He says, this is a profound mystery. And this is where we end. And I am referring to Christ and the church. What a thought to think. What a thought to think. That when God created marriage in the Garden of Eden, he was simultaneously preparing the solution that Christ would come, that Christ would come. God was already laying the groundwork of salvation from our sin and our brokenness. You want to talk about anticipation? Man, this is it right here. From the beginning, Adam and Eve in marriage were never the goal. The goal was Christ coming to bring salvation for his church that he would bring and make spotless. Marriage is ultimately a mirror that points beyond ourselves. And this is why for the single person in here. And so if you're a single person, you're thinking about marriage, or man, it just hasn't worked out for you. 
you don't have to listen to this whole sermon begrudgingly going, this is not for me this morning. Because you know that what we are talking about is actually an ultimate, it actually points beyond itself to an ultimate expression, to something that is better. This is why for the widower or the widow who is here, and as you've heard me talk, you've thought about maybe verse 18 that says, it is not good for man or woman, to, man to be alone, and you're going, I'm lonely right now. You can look at the marriage that God has given you and you can say, who are you, Lord, that you blessed me with this marriage that I had, though it was imperfect, that it would be a mirror to point to something far greater. Thank you, Lord, that you gave that to me. It's like a point beyond me to Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. For the divorced person, how good it is to know, how good it is to know that your identity at the end of the day is not marked by failure. Your identity is being known that you are in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new is here and that's never going to change. And you too will be at the marriage supper of the bride and of the lamb. The, the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. Oh, that we would see that Genesis 2, man, we would see it in a new light. You'd never see it ever the same again. That embedded in Genesis 2, the picture of marriage that we have here actually points to Christ and the church ultimately. Pair Genesis 2.24 with Ephesians 5.31, and you will see that there's hope in the future, something that is far better. That's what I want us to see. And so those last words of verse 25 ends with bliss, and we are told about the innocence that the man and the woman find themselves in. And yet we know that's not where the story ends. But that's for next week. Until then, let us see, for those of us who are married, what God has called us to. Let us uphold the most ancient, the most ancient institution before you have the church, before you have government. It is the thing that is foundational, that is covenantal marriage. And let us all realize that if you are in Christ, you are in something that marriage was point, meant to point us to. And that is Christ in the church. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.